Well, hey guys, thank you so much for tuning back into the College Age Movement Podcast. We are in the fourth and final week of our series entitled Miracles, and we've been walking through miracles that Jesus performed during his three years of ministry here on earth. And last week, we talked about a story uh, that involved 10 lepers being sent to the priests and as they went, Jesus healed them. And that phrase, as they went, was one of the things that we talked about, that we understand that as we go, as we move towards what Jesus has asked us to do, Jesus will do incredible things in our lives, that he is a perfect God, but he's not a God who expects perfection in the moment, that he's a God of process, and that we can take uh, a lot of hope in that because we are a people in process, and we don't go from point A to point D. We go from point A to point A1, and then we go to A2, and eventually, hopefully, we we get to be. So we talked about God being a God of process and, and understanding that as we go, Jesus will do incredible things in our lives. And then another thing we talked about was avoiding a spirit of entitlement, that too often we find ourselves, especially we've been following Jesus for a long time, expecting a miracle, not because of who he is, who he is, but because of what we have done. And that's a spirit of entitlement. And that's something that we want to avoid like the plague. We want to make sure that we are in, a, in amazement and in awe of Jesus all the time, anytime he decides to work on our behalf, because we don't deserve anything. We haven't earned anything. What we deserve would be eternity, eternity separated from God. But what we get is eternity with God if we would surrender our lives to him. And we should be in awe of that. And this week, we're going to talk about a story that many of us know. It's called The Feeding of the 5,000. And what's really interesting about this story is that it's one of the only stories found in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so we're going to jump back and forth through those four Gospels, but we're going to stick on this one story. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 14, verse 13. It says this is, When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. The first point is this, a solitary place, a solitary place. As we are pursuing Jesus, there's so many different questions that we tend to ask uh, as we figure out what it is that it, what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to have a relationship with him. And one of the questions that so many of us ask on a regular basis is, how do I get closer to God? How do I, how do I take my relationship with Jesus to the next level? And I think Jesus gives us great examples of how to do just that. This isn't the only time that Jesus does this. He, he often removes himself and goes into a solitary place. And I think that we can look at that and we can say, well, if Jesus did it, then I should probably do it too. And it's so important that we find space in our day-to-day lives to get alone with God. We get busy, we, we try to multitask, and we lose the perspective that I need to get alone with my Savior. I need to get alone with my Creator and just have a conversation with Him. And if we're not willing to do that, we're going to find ourselves in bad spots. And so we need to make sure that we find solitary places. We need to make sure we're setting aside, a time, setting aside time, like being intentional with it, not just hoping that it happens, but creating a space to dialogue with Jesus. And we all do that uniquely. But what is the same is that it's just as important for all of us. One of the ways that I, that I get alone with Jesus is is by worshiping. Worshiping is this this holy experience for me. And, and I love being around people, but there's something about worship that you can be surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands of people and still stand in space and just say, this is me and Jesus. I am talking to God. I am singing to God. I am lifting my voice, lifting my hands to him. And that, that's so important that we find what it is where we feel that way, where we feel like, okay, this is me and Jesus. This is me having a conversation with God. And I love the way that, that Luke chapter 5, 16, it just so simply says this. It says, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. 
lonely places. Not meaning that he felt lonely, but lonely as in alone. And so we need to find those those sacred places where we can just get alone, whether that's in our room, whether that's somewhere at school, whether that's at the church, like whatever it is, find a space. One of my, my, my spaces, my car, like that's, that's a place that I am alone quite often. And so that's a place that I can scream at God. I can yell at God. I can thank God. I can have honest, vulnerable conversations with him out loud. And people might drive by me and they might be parked at the red light next to me and be like, what in the world is going on with this guy? But that is okay. <laughs> that This is a place where I get to be alone with God and dialogue with him. And so it's so important that we do that. Uh, another way that I love to, to get in prayer and to recalibrate is to get into nature. Here in Billings, uh, or sorry, not in Billings, away from Billings, actually eight hours away from Billings, there's there's this place called Glacier National Park. And if you're in Montana, you know where it is. And even if you're not in Montana, you probably know exactly where Glacier Park is. It's this incredible thing that people travel to from all around the world. And I hadn't been there for uh, probably two decades. It was probably when I was about nine years old that uh, I last went to Glacier National Park. And I, I remember it, but not great. And uh, we, we got to go this last year, my wife and I, and we were driving what they call going to the Sun Road. And this is a road that goes all the way through the park. And you go up to this peak, and it's just amazing. And you look out over this valley. And I had to get out and sit on the ledge and just look at God's creation and just be like, I am in awe that you did this, that you created this, that you formed this, and yet you were willing to form me. And, and that was a way that I just connected with God. And it was only this five-minute experience as all of these tourists are driving by. But I was able to just stop and ponder the greatness of God. And so whatever it is for you, make sure that you find your space and go there often. And then in Mark chapter 6, verses 32 through 34, it goes on to say this. It says, So they went away by themselves by boat to a solitary place. They make sure to touch on that. But many who saw them leaving, recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. So the next point is a sheep without a shepherd. This is a phrase that many of us have come accustomed to, but I think we write it off way too often. It's something that, that is touched on in, in all of Scripture time and time and time again. So we need to make sure that we understand that it's something that we need to pay attention to. When you see something repeated in the Bible, there's a reason that it's there more, more times than one. So we need to make sure that we pay special close attention to it. But what I love is that it says that Jesus had compassion And I think it's important that we understand that we are pursuing a God who cares so deeply about us, so intimately for us, that we don't have a God who sits around and just says, figure it out. We have a God that says, I am right here with you. I am walking through the fire with you. I am at the mountaintops with you. I want you to know that I'm right here with you. But too often we look at God and we think that he's angry and has his arms crossed and he's so annoyed and so frustrated and that he's like, why haven't you figured it out yet? You've had 30 years on this earth. You've had 20 years on this earth. Why aren't you figuring this thing out. That's not our God. That's not the God that we serve. We have a God who is not frustrated with us. He's a God who is for us, who is with us, and we need to understand that he has compassion for our situations. We, we need to understand the difference. We serve a present God, not a passive God. Not a passive God who sits back and hopes that we get things figured out, but a present God who is willing to be in it with us, who is, who is shaping us and molding us and pulling us and pushing us in the directions that he would have us go. So we need to make sure that we don't sit back and be passive ourselves, but that we are present in our relationship with Jesus and that we push into him on a regular basis. In Matthew, it uses this phrase. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. Like a sheep without a shepherd, like sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. 
it, it's kind of hard, like a hard, strong phrase that, that we maybe don't want to hear because when we look at those people, we might identify with them. We're, we're sheep without a shepherd and we're harassed and we're helpless and we don't want to feel helpless. We want to feel strong and we want to feel able. But what I love about this is that it, it indicates something that so many of us have been in on a regular basis. Like sometimes life comes at you really fast and it feels like one thing after another is just piling up. The, the cliche phrase, when it rains, it pours, that comes to mind. And we've all had these seasons of life where we feel like it just couldn't get worse. And then something else happens. And we feel harassed by life. We feel harassed by Satan. We feel harassed by the people in our lives. And we just feel helpless to do anything about it. But this is this is what I love, is that they, they throughout the scripture, the, the author's they, they use this sheep without a shepherd because it, at a fundamental level, meant so much to the people that they were writing to that we might not fully understand it now because there's not very many shepherds among us, but shepherds at the time, it, it, this was something that people did. It was their livelihood. In shepherds, there's things that we have to understand that they were the least educated people in almost all of culture, that because of their lack of education, they were relegated to sit with sheep and make sure that they don't get killed by wolves or or lions or whatever it may be. So they had to just sit and watch over their sheep. Their sheep were their life. And I think that it's so important that we understand that we were so important to Jesus, that, that he had given us so much value that he was willing to give his life for his flock, that as our shepherd, he gave his life for ours. And if we can understand that, that Jesus was willing to stop, like he was moving, he was, he was on his way to go somewhere else. And yet he stopped and had compassion for us, for them, and said, I, I know that I need to teach you things. I know that I need to, to show you how to do these things. I need to shepherd you into the areas that you need to be better in, and I need to pull you out of the areas that you need to get out of. So we need to understand that Jesus is willing to be our shepherd. Mark goes on to say in chapter 6, verse 35 through 37, it says, by this time it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? So the next point is this, questions and doubts. Questions and doubts. When Jesus suggested that they feed thousands of people, they naturally thought that he was insane. And I would love to think that if I was a disciple in that moment, I would just simply be full of faith and be like, well, yeah, obviously we're going to do that. We're going to figure out how to feed these 5,000 plus people. But I don't think I would. I think I would have responded just like the disciples did. Like, Jesus, there are thousands of people here and you want us to do what? Feed them? Like, no, send them into town so they can get themselves something to eat. The disciples had been following Jesus for a while at this point and had seen him do incredible things. They had seen healings, and they had seen blind people become uh, able to see, and deaf people able to hear, and, and they'd seen people raised from the dead, and demons cast out. But apparently food was, like, the thing that you you can't do that. Like, <laughs> food food is the, the benchmark for miracles, apparently. And the disciples were like, I know you can make blind people see, but making food out of nothing, I, I don't think... You're capable of doing that, Lord. So here's the thing, though. The disciples struggle with the same thing that you and I often do. We separate the moment from the miraculous. 
I want to say that again. We separate the moment from the miraculous. We understand that Jesus has done incredible things in the past, and we believe that he's going to do incredible things in the future. But when we're in the moment, we're in the thick of our situation, we don't think that Jesus can do something there. And there's a couple different reasons that we do that. One, we don't think that our present situation is worth a miracle. We say, no, like, this is just food. Like, this is just food. Like, people need to just go eat. We don't need you to do something miraculous. We need something practical to happen here. Or our, our faith is just limited, and we just don't think that Jesus could do something with our situation because it is the situation that Jesus couldn't do something with. All of us have been there where we're like, we know he's done big things for other people, but with me in my situation, I don't think that he's going to show up. So whatever situation that you're in right now, whatever situation that I'm in right now, we need to believe that God can do something miraculous if we would just have faith, that we would, if we would step in and push into our relationship with Jesus and we would say, Lord, I, I need a miracle. I expect you to do a miracle and it might look different than what I want, but I need you to move on my behalf and understand that he could do that. We have to have, we have to have persistent faith, daily faith, not just hope for the future, hope for today. Hope for right now, hope for this week, hope for that relationship, hope for that job. Like we need to have persistent daily faith, not just faith that God has done something and will do something in the future, but he could do something right here, right now. I love how John writes about this moment. Uh, Chapter six, verses five through seven in in the book of John, it says, um, when Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have just a bite. Jesus gives us opportunities to respond in faith. I think it's always important to know that God isn't going to simply do something because we say he will, but he's always going to give us opportunities to have big faith. It says that Jesus already had in mind what he was going to do, and he wanted Philip specifically to say, Lord, I think that you're going to do something incredible in this situation. I think that you're going to do something big and miraculous because you're Jesus and you're the son of God and this is going to be unbelievable. But Philip's response is way too real for me. He immediately goes practical instead of spiritual. And I don't know how you approach your faith, but, but too often in my faith with Jesus, I go practical before I go spiritual. There are people who pray about everything. There are people who have a God answer for every situation. And, and I'm admitting to you as a pastor that that is not always my go-to. If somebody comes up and says, oh, I, I am not feeling well, I'm like, you should probably go to the doctor. Like, you should go to a, a medical professional and figure that out. Where other people will be like, you know what, I'm going to pray for you right here, right now, that God is going to heal you completely. And I would love to say that that would be my go-to, but, but my answer is so much like Philip's is in this moment, that instead of thinking that God would do something miraculous in the situation, I just go straight practical and I say, hey, like we need to send them into the towns that have food, they have vendors, and they probably have money on them so they can go buy themselves food. And if we were to do that, that would take more than half a year's wages for them to just have a bite. Like that's, that's insane. Like, so let's, let's make sure that they get fed. But Jesus was giving Philip the opportunity to respond in faith And he gives us opportunities to respond in faith. And I don't know where you are. Maybe you're the person who responds in faith on a regular basis. And and good for you. Keep on doing that. That doesn't mean that there's not room for practical. We need to have room for practical. There's a reason there are doctors. And there's a reason that there are professionals in different areas. There's a reason that we have people who counsel. And we have people who do relationship advice. And all those things. Like Those are practical answers where you go and you, you do tangible things to make things better in your life. But also understand that there is something about prayer. There is something about the miraculous 
There's something about Jesus doing big, incredible things if we would just push into the faith that he has asked us to have. All of this conversation stems from a single statement. You give them something to eat. And that leads us to our next point. Jesus wants us to participate in the miraculous. Jesus wants us to participate in the miraculous. The disciples were astonished at the statement that, that Jesus made. You give them something to eat. And I think that we should be too. Not, not astonished because he would ask us to do something big or crazy or faith-filled, but astonished that he would even deem us worthy to participate in his miracles. But you see, our, our God isn't a God that needs recognition. He's God. Like he, he, he loves it when we, when we recognize him, but it's not something that like, if he doesn't get recognized in the situation, then he's not even willing to do it. You see, he wants his people to be purposed. He's a powerful God that purposes his people. And we need to understand that, that he is capable, but he always wants us to feel purposed and used on a regular basis because that inspires us to follow Jesus more when he does things through us. And that, that's so important that we understand that, that we get to be a part of his miracles, that we would feel the weight of that, that, that Jesus has asked us to go and be his hands and feet. If you come to Faith Chapel here in Billings, we, you hear that phrase all the time, go be the hands and feet of Jesus. It's not because Jesus couldn't or wouldn't do things without us doing what he's asked us to do, but man, he loves when his people step in and participate in their relationship with him. Mark goes on to say this in verses 38 through 44. It says, uh, how many loaves do you have? He asked, go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among, the, uh, among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was 5,000. So this is really important. Uh, it doesn't make it uh, more amazing or less amazing. Um, maybe it does make it more amazing. I'm going to take that back. Because the way that they counted how many people were in a group was just by the adult men. And there were 5,000 of them, not including women and children. So, so scholars believe that there were so many more. There, there could have been upwards of eight or 9,000 people that they fed with five loaves and two fish. That Jesus did something absolutely miraculous in that moment. And there are two things that I think that we can learn from this section of scripture. Number one, Jesus was teaching the disciples about their value. Jesus was teaching the disciples about their value. While Jesus could have had food rain down from heaven, he used the little that they had to do something unbelievable. It says, when they found out what they had, when the disciples found out what they had, that, that, that's a really important phrase because they knew full well that they wouldn't find enough food to feed everyone. But what they did find is what they did have. And we might not have much, but we need to let this phrase resonate with us because we need to do our due diligence and see what we do have to offer, because it's a lesson for us to learn. Jesus will do incredible things with the little that we have. Jesus will do something incredible with the little that we have. As human beings, we tend to look at how little we have to offer him instead of focusing on how much he has to offer us. We serve a big God who can do incredible things, so even if the little that we have is, it seems 
puny and it seems insignificant, but God is God and we are not. And he's not asking us to be God. He's asking us to be us. So if we would just put our hands out and say, Lord, this is the little that I have. Would you take it and do something miraculous with it? Here's my loaves. Here's my fish. Here's my life. Do something incredible with what I have. Uh, If you've come to college age for a long time, and you might have heard me tell this story before, but it's one of the most miraculous moments of my life. I had a friend whose, whose mom was diagnosed with stage four cancer when we were about 11 years old. And uh, it was really hard for me to comprehend as an 11-year-old what was going on. I knew that she was sick. I knew that she could die, but I didn't know the gravity of cancer. I didn't know what was going on. And she had 36 tumors throughout her body. And uh, the prognosis was not good, that, that she had months to live if she was lucky. And so we did a prayer gathering at, at her house, and I was 11, and, and I didn't know what I was doing. And so I, I put my hand on her shoulder, and while other people prayed these big extravagant prayers, I just said, Lord, would you heal her? Heal her, fix her, make her better. That's all I could pray. And we stood there for hours as we prayed over her. And she went to the doctor two days day later to, to go in. They were, gonna, they were going to do surgery, and they were going to try to extend her life, but they weren't confident that they could do anything to extend her life for more than a few months, if, a, if not just maybe a year and uh, she went in, and she had 36 tumors, and uh, she got a scan and had zero. No tumors. And they couldn't explain it. They didn't try to explain it. It was nothing short of miraculous. And here's what I understood, even, even when I was 11, is that I didn't heal her. That me by, by me putting my hand on her shoulder, there was nothing that I did. There was nothing that the group of people did other than have faith. God healed her. God did something miraculous through a couple people who had faith. But God could have done that without the prayer gathering. God could have done that if he just said, you know what, I'm going to heal her. But this is what happened, is that I left that season so hyped, so excited to participate in what God was doing in my friend groups, at my school, in my family. I wanted to be a part of more. And I have prayed for people for the, for the last 20 years, and nothing that miraculous has happened again. But I will never forget that, because I knew that God could do something significant through the faith of people. Jesus know, knew and still knows that there, are pe- there is power and purpose in a faith filled person. So let's be people who are, are faith-filled, who, who believe that he's going to do the miraculous, that he's going to take the little bit of faith that we have, the little bit of skill that we have, the little bit of passion that we have, and he's going to turn it into something big and powerful, and that God will move on our behalf. And secondly, what Jesus was doing here is that he was showing them that what he does will be more than enough. What he does will be more than enough. If Jesus would have performed a miracle that simply satisfied the 5,000 plus people there, it would still be recorded in history, and it would still be worth repeating. There's no doubt about that. But here's the thing. There were 12 baskets left over that the disciples gathered when the people were done eating. And so often we, we write that off and we're like, oh, they're leftovers. Like, that's great. But what it indicates is that Jesus doesn't just do the bare minimum. He doesn't just do the bare minimum in our lives. He doesn't just do the bare minimum. He goes above and beyond. As followers of Jesus, I think that this is a great indication of how we should live our lives. I think that we're supposed to walk through our daily lives and it should be a goal of ours to go above and beyond as well. When people have a certain level of expectation, as, as followers of Jesus, they have this expect, expectation that you're going to love this much and you're going to forgive this much and you're going to be present this much and, and you're going to be around four people and show up this much, that we would be people who go above and beyond that that we would love extravagantly, that we would, that we would be present extraordinarily, that, that we would go above and beyond in every aspect of our life. And when people ask us why we go above and beyond for them, we would say, because Jesus went above and beyond for me. That Jesus could have done the bare minimum. 
but he didn't, and he doesn't. He always does more than we could ever ask him to do. Jesus often blows our expectations out of the water, and my hope is that we could be a people who blow others' expectations out of the water as well. I would love to close down this week with a prayer. So if you're able, would you bow your heads? And, and if you're in a spot where, where you're comfortable to just, just put your hands out, I would ask you to do that. Heavenly Father, Lord, with our hands extended, Lord, we want, we want to have a posture of surrender, and we want you to know that we are offering the little that we have. Would you take this, this little that we have, our loaves and our fishes, our skills, Lord, our passions, all of those things, the little that we have as broken, messy human beings, and would you use that to do miraculous things? Show us how to love people well. Show us to have grace and mercy, how to forgive people, and, and go above and beyond and blow people's expectations out of the water. It's not about us. It's about you and your love and your grace and your mercy. And would people see you through us? We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.